Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Let us continue standing for the reading of God's Word for our message today. Today we'll be looking at John chapter 20, verses 19 to 29. John chapter 20, the Gospel of John, verses 19 to 29. This is a different gospel, same passage or story that we saw last week with a little uh, event that occurs one week later in the same room. Let us, near hear, let us now hear God's word. On the evening of the day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace! Be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive sins of many, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, pardon me, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Put out your hand and place it, into my, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let us pray. Our God and Father, as we open your word now, we ask for your spirit to guide and direct us. As we have heard, Lord, from Paul, we are sinners. This is a sinner in the pulpit this morning. Help the words I speak be your words, your truth. And may your spirit guide it to our hearts and grow us in grace that we might know you better trust you more, and be the followers you need in your kingdom. Thank you, Lord, for your incredible love, your incredible mercy. We wait upon you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As I've already mentioned, the passage we're looking at today is somewhat of an echo of what we looked at last week. And there's some purpose in that because to understand the one passage, you need to have the other by its side. Scripture interprets scripture. Have you ever been disappointed? 
Really sad. Maybe there was a, a sale on something you, you really wanted. You've been looking for it, been watching it on Amazon or at the store or whatever, and just got busy that week. And somebody says, hey, you know, that, that, that thing you were looking for, it's on sale on Amazon, is it? And you go over and see, and the sale's over. You missed it. Uh, or you're, you're looking for that one particular color car at the dealership, and the cars are hard to find. You need to buy the new car, and you, you want that red car. And we get those in so rarely. Well, I'll keep checking back. And you check back one day. Oh, we had one yesterday. We sold it. Yeah, but I wanted a red car. Or as a child, have you ever been disappointed? It's... You know, it's Christmas and, you know, you've asked for that special thing that you really, really wanted. And you've made it very clear to mom and dad. I mean, they, they couldn't miss it. It was like written on the side of the house. But Christmas morning, he went through all that wrapping paper and through all those boxes. And it was not there. I remember once as a child, my grandparents came for a visit, quick visit at our house. And, you know, I was outside playing and this typical child wants likes playing. Oh, I'll be in in a minute. And I just kept playing. And, and I was just small and playing in the sandbox. And when I, when I felt it was time to go in, I went in and found out my grandparents had already left. Oh, rats. I wanted to see my grandparents. Well, I think we can sort of gather somewhat how Thomas may have felt. He missed an important gathering. We talked about that gathering last week when Jesus appeared to the disciples, but Thomas wasn't present. Is he disappointed that he was not there? Disappointed? Uh, is he uh, uh, doubting that Jesus rose from the dead? I, I would say more than a doubter. I think, he was, I think he was a skeptic. He really didn't believe it happened. He was really looking for concrete proof. And, and we'll take a look at that this morning and, and how Jesus breaks through his, his concrete wall that he's built up. Unless I put my finger in those nail holes. Kind of gross, huh? <laughs> my hand in his side, that's even grosser. I won't believe. Well, let's look at our text this morning. We'll be looking at three main points. First, the initiation of the disciples. That's somewhat of a review of what we talked about last week. And then to the invitation to the disciple, Jesus speaking with um, Thomas. And finally, the invigoration of the descendants. That's us. How, what does this mean to us? First of all, the initiation of the disciples. As we saw last week, Jesus spoke to the senses of the disciples. Not their common senses, but their senses of hearing, of seeing, of touching and tasting. It's very real. Jesus wanted to communicate to them that he was alive, that he stood in their midst, that he was not some sort of, of ghost or anything like that, but he was alive. Here in our text this morning, we hear that they had the door locked because they were afraid that they would be next on the Jewish hierarchy hit list. So they locked themselves in out of fear of the Jews. But Jesus came, comes to them. And he says, peace be to you. Same thing as from Luke's gospel. This peace, as we saw last week, could refer back to what Jesus spoke in his gospel here. In John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world does do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Is this the peace Jesus is speaking about? 
John doesn't seem to speak about the fear that Luke expressed about the disciples. So that we saw those words last week, how the disciples were agitated and, and fearful and, and shocked and, and so forth. John seems to pass over that. But Jesus makes it clear to them, too, that he shows his hands and his side to them to prove that he has physically raised from the dead. This was no apparition. This was Jesus Christ, literally, in flesh and blood. Still fully God, yet still fully man, alive. It says the disciples were glad. As we saw last week from Luke, their, their, their joy got in the way of their belief. You know, really, John's telling the same events, just a different person. Have you ever heard of somebody tell of events of a story? One will speak about the same events one way, and another, the event's a little different, and which is really neat about the Bible. You know, here's two men who were in the same room that day, and or not Luke, but Luke's witnesses, expressing what was going on, and it really gives a true sense of the validity of the Gospels. Jesus then talks about the Spirit in verses 21 and following. He says to them a second time, peace be with you. Is that a hint that there might still be a little bit of anxiety there in that room about what is happening? And then we come to a Trinitarian passage right here in the Gospel of John. Listen carefully. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. There's all three persons of the Trinity. The Father has sent me, even as I am sending you. Here's the Holy Spirit that dwell within you. They were to be witnesses, witnesses of the world, as we saw last week. And he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. But you Bible scholar is going to say again, uh-oh, wait a minute, pastor. Wait, wait, wait. That's the Pentecost. Why is the Holy Spirit coming now? The Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. But we need to be careful here. If you remember back last week, we looked at Luke 24, 45, that in order for the disciples to understand the passages about the resurrection and about Jesus' ministry that we went over, Jesus opened their minds, Luke 24, 45. This is just how John speaks to it. He breathed on them the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon them at this time to give them understanding, to, to see. For their minds, their minds are like our minds. Minds covered by our own desires. Minds that are, are, are blinded by our own sin. And Jesus sovereignly works grace in their hearts to give them understanding. What happens in Acts chapter 2 at the Pentecost is a giving of the Holy Spirit as well, but an empowerment to preach and bring the gospel to the world. This expression of the Holy Spirit coming upon them is to have their minds open to the truth. As Jesus spoke earlier in John 14 to his disciples, I will ask the Father and he'll give you a helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. John 14, 16 to 17. So the disciples didn't gather it in their own brains. They weren't the smartest people on the earth, neither are we. We need the Holy Spirit to open our minds to see the truth. 
Again, John 14, verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. There's that peace and the Holy Spirit come together. No wonder Jesus is speaking about peace here. It makes total sense. Paul later, in writing to the Ephesians, realizing the importance for us as Christians to have the Holy Spirit to open our minds to understand God's Word, writes this in Ephesians 1:17 and following. He asked the congregation there to pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you might see what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Paul's basically saying when we pray, we need to pray that the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and hearts. Pastors don't pray before their sermons because the pastors have been doing that for centuries and centuries. We pray for the Holy Spirit to come upon us when God's word is preached that we would understand. That's why you should pray for your pastor each week as he prepares his sermon that he would understand God's truth. But the understanding is not an end of itself. There's the service, verse 23. When they received the Spirit, our Lord said to them, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the sins from any, it is withheld. Wow. There's a power place. <laughs> you can say if your sins are forgiven, they're forgiven. If they're not, wow, what, what a place to be in. But I think the NIV, not the ESV, pardon me, does a, a bit of a disservice to us at this point. I think the uh, literal reading of the text needs to be seen here because you have a perfect tense. The, the New American Standard, I believe, translates this passage a little bit more clearly. Not that this is a bad translation, it's just more clear. So here again, uh, chapter 20 of John's Gospel, verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. It's a perfect tense. That second phrase in both situations is a perfect tense. In other words, it's not the disciples who have been doing the forgiving. The forgiving has come from on high, from God. So, so what in the world does this mean then? Uh, how can the disciples forgive sins if they've been forgiven by God? What does that mean? It simply means, this is Jesus' way of saying, when you declare the gospel, when you declare the gospel to this world, you're telling forth the hope of redemption, the hope of deliverance. And people need to make a decision whether they're going to believe or not, which goes back to the Holy Spirit again. Let, let me read the, the footnote here in the uh, New American Standard Study Bible. I think it sums it up well. Uh, chapter 20, verse 23, they write, Those whose sins you forgive, they have been forgiven those whose sins you do not forgive have not been forgiven. God does not forgive people's sins because we do so, nor does he withhold forgiveness because we do. Rather, those who proclaim the gospel are in effect forgiving or not forgiving sins, depending on whether the hearers accept 
or reject Jesus Christ. That's why we preach the gospel. That's why you share the gospel. There's the hope of forgiveness, of announcing the hope of life and forgiveness. This is what the disciples were going to do. This would be played out in Jerusalem and throughout Judea and Samaria and to the utter ends of the earth and the very thing that you do. It's what this church was built on years ago when it was planted, when a pastor came here and took the gospel into the neighborhood and invited people to come and establish a church here years and years ago. That's our hope. The disciples weren't called to be judge and jury over a world. They were coming with a gospel, a message of hope and redemption. Don't look at this passage as some mean, rough, pushing around of people, bullying them. No, not at all. It's sharing the message of hope that people would hear the gospel of truth. But let's move on. Our focus is not on all these disciples. We looked at them last week. We're focusing on one disciple, and that's Thomas. So let's go on. The invitation to the disciple. We'll be looking at the background, a little bit about who Thomas was, then the rebound, how he comes back, so to say, and then the profound, what Thomas has to say. First of all, some background. Uh, Thomas's name means Didymus or twin. Uh, the Greek as well as the Hebrew means his name is twin. So he obviously had a twin sister or brother. We nothing, know nothing about that. In fact, in the scriptures, Thomas is only mentioned twice, here and in John 11. In John 11, it speaks about the time when Lazarus was raised from the dead, and Jesus said, we're going on to Jerusalem. And in John 6, uh, 11, 16, the other disciples were kind of afraid about this idea because they knew Jerusalem was ex well, wasn't exactly friendly. Well, it was hostile to Jesus. But Thomas says this in eleven sixteen 16 of John. He said, let us also go that we may die with him. Let's go. Shows Thomas was a man um, very committed. Wherever this goes, I'm with it. I'm going to go to the end. Very strong willed. He's very committed. So then the disciples speak to Thomas. We, we don't know why he was not there that night with the others. You know, anything is speculation. I, I wonder if he wasn't there because he didn't want to hide behind a locked door. He was one going to Jerusalem. Hey, let's, let's go to Jerusalem and die. If they want to get me, I'm going to be out on the streets. They want to arrest me, fine. The other, you guys, you want to hide behind a door and lock it, fine. Uh, maybe, maybe that's what he's thinking, but we don't know. That's mere speculation. But the disciples find him quickly, maybe later that evening or first thing in the morning, and they say, Thomas, Thomas, we've seen Jesus. He's alive. He's alive. <laughs> Notice Thomas's words. Unless I see his hands and the mark of the nail and place my finger in the nail hole and place my hand in his side, I'll never believe. I see a... It's not a doubter. I see a skeptic. In fact, I see someone who's angry, angry that this whole thing is blown up. This whole thing is gone to not everything he hoped for. He was determined. He was a, he was a determined doubter. <laughs> he was a skeptic. He was all in for the cross and it didn't happen. Fast forward seven days. Okay. 
eight days later, the text tells us, but that's the Jewish way of saying a week because they count the day you're in plus seven. So it's Sunday night again, and they're in the exact same room they were in a week ago. Thomas is there, and they got him behind the locked door this time. <laughs> Doors are locked, and there is Jesus. Again, as we mentioned last week, we have no idea how Jesus came in. Did he walk through the wall? Uh, did he? Uh, we're not told. He was there. Did he simply open the door even though it was locked? Nothing's going to stop him. Uh, we talked about that last week. The emphasis is not how Jesus came in. A lot of times we get off track that way. But it was on Thomas. Eight days later, when the disciples were inside again, Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. There's that statement again, peace, the risen Savior, peace, peace that comes from him. And he turns immediately and stares at Thomas. Is Thomas going to be condemned? Didn't you believe who, who, why didn't you believe me, Thomas? No, no, no words of condemnation. Nothing at all. In fact, he speaks to Thomas almost in the exact words that Thomas spoke about him. Notice what he says here. Put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand, put out your hand and place it in my side. He, he knows what Thomas was thinking. Of course, he's God, but he's also fully man. See, it, 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 it's, it's not Thomas that Jesus condemns, but Jesus comes in his resurrected body in his full presence and confronts Thomas. That's how Jesus speaks to our hearts. He doesn't come to condemn the world. Jesus came to save the world. That's our message to the world. It's not a negative world. It's not a negative message. It, 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 it has to be a positive message that we're bringing the gospel of hope. We're bringing a living Jesus to the world. One who was put to death on a cross and is back and alive. And, and that's not the miracle. The miracle is that he died for our sins. And through his death, he covers our sins if we place our faith in him as our sacrifice. And he gives us righteousness to stand before the throne. No, Thomas is not condemned. Thomas is confronted with the presence of the living Christ. Fully physical. Look at the person next to you. That, that, they don't look like Jesus, I know. <laughs> but they were. A, Jesus was there just like that person beside you is here. Then comes the profound, verses 28 and 29. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. No sticking fingers, no j jabbing an arm or a hand in, in the side. He comes out with the strongest text of the divinity of Christ in all of Scripture. The highest level of faith, my Lord and my God. Thomas knew it was Christ when he was confronted. No need to touch. No need to touch at all. No one has ever addressed Christ like this in the rest of Scripture. And notice too, please, Jesus fully accepts Thomas's words. No, oh, no, Thomas, slow down. No, wait, wait, Thomas, your, your, your theology is twisted. No, he is Lord, and he is God. He's Lord and God. Jesus' presence shattered 
whatever Thomas had up for a wall, shattered it to pieces. And this clear verbal statement of faith and trust is there. Then Jesus says to Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Who's Jesus speaking about there? Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. That's you and me. That's you and me. We believe because the message of these men who have seen Jesus Christ and have brought that message to us through the Gospels, through their preaching, through the history of the church, our Lord is alive. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. We believe Jesus rose from the dead, not because we have all the proof in front of us, but because he's alive. Why, could, why did Thomas say those words, my Lord and my God? He could say, okay, let me check it out here. No, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, that looks about right. And let's see that hole. Let me reach. Oh, yeah, that, that was a spear hole. No, he doesn't. It's the Holy Spirit at work in Thomas. When he sees Jesus, he sees him. We walk by faith and not by sight. We take this word of God by faith that Jesus is alive. Hebrews 11 1 and verses 6. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And without faith, verse 6, it is impossible to please him, for whoever draws near to God must believe he exists and he rewards those who seek him. It's not he rewards them because of our seeking, but our seeking shows who he is. Thomas's life was changed by the power of God. So what does this mean to us? What is the invigoration of the descendants? That's us, those of us who believe through faith. Three points in conclusion. First of all, the person, the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our God. This is a profound statement by Thomas. It affirms not only the person of Jesus Christ as, 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 as our, our Lord, but also his divinity. He is God. Jesus is alive, fully God, fully man. He's no dream, no hallucination, no ghost, no desire of, of man to turn a, 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 an earthly leader into a savior. No, he is God. He is God. I think Thomas is profound here. How do you view Jesus? We like the, the, the nice New Testaments we give our, our children or Bibles to have Jesus carrying the lamb over his shoulders or, or cuddling with children. We, we, we like the, the picture of Jesus putting an arm around of compassion. And those are, those are right. There's nothing wrong with them. But sometimes we get them out of proportion to the fact that Jesus is also Lord and God. Lord and God. He is shepherd. But he is king also. King. Philippians 2, verses 9 and 10. Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
Wow, he is God. He's compassionate. He's loving. He's kind. But he's God. And we should never, never forget that. We discount Jesus too easily. We turn him into the Pillsbury Doughboy, if they still run those ads. This is a nice squishy thing, a nice teddy bear. Reading from Revelation 19, verse 11 and following. Then I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and his name is written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dripped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, pure and white, were following him on white horses. From his mouth was a sharp sword with which it struck down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Now, much of that is imagery. Okay, is that literally what's going to happen? Good question. That's another sermon another day. But that's the thought behind it, which is true. Jesus Christ is king. He will reign. He will bring judgment on this earth one day. But he is our Lord and Savior. We need to keep those in balance. For many times, we like a Jesus that fits our world instead of us fitting Jesus' world. Listen to that carefully. We want a Jesus that fits our world, that we feel comfortable with, that we like, that makes our world go well, as opposed to the Jesus who really exists. The story goes, I don't know if this took place on a Titanic or another ship that sank. When the ship was sinking, the passengers had to escape. There weren't lifeboats for everyone, but they had life preservers. So two men who were on the ship decided to leave. And they told the people, if you want to save your life, get rid of everything you don't need. Take your life preserver, jump in the water, then you can get into a boat. These two men said, yeah, we don't want our books. We don't want our suitcases. But we do have our money belts with gold in them. We can jump in the water. We'll swim to the boat with the gold in them. Problem. Gold is quite heavy. They jumped in the water, and they went down. That was what was important to them. They, they, they wanted safety, but they wanted what they wanted. If we want to take Jesus Christ serious in our life, he is our shepherd. He is kind. He died for your sins. He's merciful. He's the, the priest that we read about from Hebrews who, who is there as an example for us, but he is also Lord and God. And he wants our unreserved loyalty to him. Taking him at his word, not just for what works for us, but what he is doing and how he is using us in his world. It's a bigger picture. So we need to keep in mind, as Thomas said, my Lord and my God, his world, his view of how Jesus should have been shattered. I'm following you, Jesus. That is what we are called to do the same. Secondly, the power, the power to change your heart and mind. We saw this in Luke 24, 45, where the, Jesus opened the minds so the disciples could understand what Jesus was saying. Here, the Holy Spirit was given that the disciples would understand. Again, in 28, verse 28, 
Thomas was able to understand this was the power of God at work. It's the new heart. It's what we call being born again. It's the heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. And when we become a Christian, God opens our hearts. I heard the gospel for well over a year on how to be saved back when I was in college. I, I could recite it as well as the Christians could. I, I could draw the little drawings and, and how one needs to come to Jesus. But until the Holy Spirit cracked my heart and opened my eyes, it was not there. The prophet Ezekiel speaks about this in Ezekiel 36, verse 26 and following. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit will be put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we follow Jesus not because we're smart, not because we put our minds to it, not because we work so hard at it. It's because the Holy Spirit has opened our eyes. Hear it. It's the only way it's going to be reached, how, how the gospel will reach others. The gospel opens their minds and hearts. That's why we share the gospel. We are not accountable to bring people in the kingdom. Our job is to share the gospel. It's God that does the changing of the heart. It's God that turns the light switch on, so to say. So important. And it should humble us, too, that we can even understand who Jesus is because of what God has done. That power is at work in your hearts, was in the work in Thomas's heart, in the hearts of the disciples. It's the power that changes us, and it's the power that will change this world. Which brings me to the last point, the purpose. The purpose of all this is to tell the world. It's to tell the world. Now, we are not called to save the world. We're not told to convince people to believe in Jesus. If our neighbor is not a Christian, we take them in our garage, we beat them silly till they say, yes, yes, I believe in Jesus. No, that's not what we're called to do. We're not to badger them or bang them or hit them over the head with our big study Bibles. It doesn't work. The Holy Spirit has to work. But they'll never understand unless you tell them the story. Are you telling the story? Are you telling the story? of a risen Savior who conquered death, who paid the price for sin, who enables us to stand before God, who's coming again, of a God who loved us so much that he gave his only begotten Son that if you believe in him, you will not perish, but have everlasting life. And believing in him is just not, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. I mean, believe in him, my Lord and my God type belief. You know, we, we, we don't originate the gospel that we share with people. We're sharing a message that has stood for centuries. In fact, it's the history of the Bible. As we mentioned last week, we're, we're not orators. We're merely reporters telling the story. We need to tell the story because God works through that story to reach people. This is what the disciples were told to do. Go and tell the story. It's more than just living a godly Christian life. It's telling the story. People will never understand why we believe in Jesus because the Holy Spirit uses that account of the gospel to change hearts. Paul makes this clear in, in Romans 
chapter 1. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and then also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Christian, we worship a living God. We worship a triune God. There's a living Jesus who has a physical body like you and I and who's fully God, and he's coming again. He is our God, our shepherd, our king. He has given us power to see and to understand, and he's given us a purpose. Share that story. Share it this week. A neighbor, a friend, a work associate, share the story and see what God can do as the Holy Spirit takes it to work. Amen? Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you this morning for your word, your truth, for Thomas. Oh, Lord, we see ourselves in Thomas so too easily. We can be so stubborn and hard-hearted too. Forgive us, Lord, of our own hard-heartedness, of our own stiff-neckedness, and help us, Lord, to trust you and believe you. Help us, Lord, to move in faith toward you and know that you are alive, Lord Jesus, and you're coming again. Thank you for dying for our sins. Thank you for being our God. May we trust you, not only as our shepherd, but as our Lord. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. If you've benefited from this ministry and want to know of ways you can help or support it, We'd like to make you aware of our new capital campaign to build a new building. God has recently blessed us with growth here at New Covenant. Over the years, our church has been small. It's gone up and down. But overall, things have been tight financially, and the church has been small. Now, by the grace of God, we are growing. We believe it wise in light of this to think about building a new building to facilitate even more growth. Our current building only seats 72. We cannot fit any more seats, and if we were to fill every single one, every Lord's Day, we would have no more than 72. The plans for our new building would more than double the capacity and enable us to grow to a point where we can be stable financially and even be able to help other churches. One of the things that we want to, to be is a church that is able to look beyond itself for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. We believe that this new building can help us get there. And so we are praying that God would provide for us the funds needed to build a new building, that we would grow to fill it, and that one day we would even be able to plant a church ourselves. As you know, doing ministry here in the Bay Area, this is a very dark place. Uh, there is a great need for the light of the gospel to shine, particularly in this place, uh, through the preaching of the word. And so if you want to support us and to, to support our efforts to see this new building built, please consider giving a financial gift to this end. You can give by sending us a check with building fund in the memo line. Our address can be found on our website. You can also give by Zelle by sending the money to nc.opcssf.treasurer at gmail.com with building fund in the memo line. May God bless you with a greater knowledge of his word and zeal for his name.